You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. My name's Carter. I serve with the students here at Northway, and today we are going to be in Genesis 17. So if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and turn that way. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, you should see one under the seat in front of you, and that is yours to take home. We're going to be starting in verse 1. It says, when, Abraham, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham." For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you, throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant, to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you, throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Carter. Good to see you, church family. Hope you're doing well. If you're a guest among us, uh, I'm so glad you're with us here today. My name is Shay Sumlin. I'm one of the pastors here and um, just grateful you're with us. Uh, as we get going here, turn into Genesis 17, where we're going to be. That passage that Carter just read, you're thinking, oh my gosh, what did I just walk into? This is Circumcision Sunday here, Northway. We teach the Bible book by book. We don't shy away from awkward passages, and we're in one today. But um, I got to tell you, um, this past week, I put this in the church email this week, but man, I, was, I have come off uh, what was just a crazy couple of weeks uh, for me. Two Tuesdays ago, I got summoned to jury duty. And, uh, and so I went down, um, down in Dallas. And uh, while, yes, it is our civic duty, we are blessed to be citizens of the United States of America and this wonderful responsibility in the county of Dallas. I, like every one of you, unless you're a liar, showed up praying to God that he would get me off um, and get me out of this because I had too much to do. I had a busy week. I had Genesis 17 to prepare for. And uh, so we sat in this room and there's hundreds of people in this this room. And I'm just going, okay, Lord, let's just get me out of here. And they start calling names to different courts. And a couple courts go by and they didn't call my name. And I'm like, this is good. And then I heard it, Shia Sumlin 
And I wanted to stand up and say, I don't know her. I don't think she's here today. But nonetheless, they called my name and I'm like, oh my gosh, okay. So I go up to this courtroom that they assigned me to. I'm with 50 people and their job is to take these 50 and whittle them down to 12. And they are about to start interviewing us, you know, checking for bias and prejudice and, you know, weeding people out. And, um, and then they, they introduce what case this is going to be. And my heart sunk because when they read the case, I knew exactly what this was. This was the largest um, homicidal mass murder of its kind in U.S. history. Uh, if you want to know the details, I'll talk to you offline, off podcast, uh, and tell you about it. But they, you would know what this is. I could not believe this was the courtroom that I just got assigned to. And this was a civil case. So this is the fallout um, from the criminal pieces. This is kind of wrongful death case. And, um, and man, and they start asking questions. And in this moment, I'm thinking, one, this is a heavy case. Two, I'm probably going to be here a long time if I get picked. So is this the time I let them know I'm a pastor? Um, I was like, what do I do? Is there a shop around the corner I can go buy a MAGA hat at real quick? And maybe that'll get me off. Me. Whatever. I'm trying to figure it out. How can I get off this thing? But I didn't. I'm a godly man. I want to, I'm honest. There were a lot of liars in that room that day. I assure you, I could hear their stories of why they shouldn't be there. But whole day goes by. I've been there since eight. It's now 3.30 and they're ready to start picking the 12th. And so we come in and they just start calling the names and they're, they get through the first nine out of 12 jurors, no name. And I'm going, oh yes. And then there it was, Shia Sumlin. Once again, uh, I, I'll be honest with y'all. I, I don't really wrestle with a lot of anxiety. I don't have panic attacks. I know folks who do, but I felt like I had one in that moment because I was just, it all hit me. This was sobering what I am about to walk into. And they pull us away immediately into a back room for maybe three minutes. We sign a paper, come back in. I'm, it's the end of the day. I'm assuming we go home and then we'll start this thing tomorrow. And they immediately go into opening arguments. And I'm like, oh my gosh. And the first thing in the opening arguments is autopsy pictures. And I just, I mean, I was overwhelmed. And, uh, and I've got two two sets of families that are in this room in tears that are now looking to me and 11 others that we might grant each one of them what they hope is justice. And uh, it was a, all I can say is a heavy, heavy trial. It went an entire week, bled over into the next week um, before it, it, it ended. And the whole time, all I kept thinking, what I felt like I needed to know most was that God's got me. And, and to be honest, that God's got us. That God is not a liar. And he indeed does have true justice that is coming for the entire world and true and final redemption for the entire world that has been torn apart by sin. I had to believe it. And, uh, and so I'll tell you, um, this chapter that we're in today uh, has been a comfort to me this week. Now, again, you read at first glance, a lot of circumcision and you're going, how in the, where are we going with this? How are you going to do this one? There, uh, what you're going to see in this chapter 
is that one of the things that God is so kind to give his children, especially knowing how much we are prone to doubt, um, is he gives us these permanent, visible signs that we can look to to serve as reminders that not only are we his, but also where he has promised to take us that is for our good. And so chapter 17, uh, chapter 17 comes 13 years after chapter 16 of Genesis. 13 years after Abram and Sarai uh, and their boneheaded decision to, ob- to try to obtain the promises of God through human means. God promised that he was gonna give Abram a son, an offspring, even though his wife was barren. He promised that and they took things into their own hands and together they grabbed the maidservant, Hagar, and allowed Abram to lie with her and thus they had a child, Ishmael. That's what we saw in chapter 16. Um, And God is gonna show up here in chapter 17, 13 years later, and God is gonna provide for Abram and Sarai, not just one, but two signs to reassure and reaffirm and remind them that God is not a liar. That when he says he's gonna give them a kid, he's gonna give them a kid, and that's not the way it's gonna happen. But two signs, one is a personal sign, the other one's gonna be a corporate sign. One is that of renaming, and the other is that of circumcision. And this is gonna be God's seal to certify the promise that he made back in chapter 12 of what's coming. And what you have here in chapter 17, if you're an outliner, you love how things are laid out, chapter 17 is gonna begin with a declaration of who God is to the doubter. And then after that is gonna come two main discourses. Each discourse of, of God will begin with, and God said, and then will be followed by three I wills. And then each one of those is going to be accompanied by one of those signs we talked about. So let's dive in here. Chapter 17, let's begin with a declaration in the first three verses here. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and he said to him, I am God almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. And then Abram fell on his Face. In other words, God says, listen, Abram, 13 years ago, you got lost, brother. You got tired of waiting. You doubted my might. And so you tried to obtain my promise through your own might. But I'm here to tell you, I am God almighty. And I want you to make a note. That is the first time in your Bible that God gives himself a name other than Yahweh to his people. The Hebrew word, the Hebrew word for God Almighty there is El Shaddai. El Shaddai. And El Shaddai, Hebrew language is real interesting because it's very visual. Words are kind of named after scenes. And so there are two ways to describe El Shaddai. One of them means God of the mountain and the other one means God of the breast. I'm just going to let you do the imagery right there. But essentially we're either talking about God the rock, God the mountain who is the almighty, the powerful who can do anything. And I I do believe, I think that's the context, but it is unsure. God of the breast would simply be that God is the God of nourishment. God is the provider. God is the sustenance. 
either could play into this equation, but 48 times that title El Shaddai is used in the Old Testament. 31 of them are in the book of Job. But every time El Shaddai is used in Genesis, it is always connected to God's promise for future descendants. It's God saying, it's by my might, Abram, that your provision is gonna come, not by yours. Your response to El Shaddai is simply to walk before me and be blameless. That phrase, walk before me, in the ancient world denoted loyalty to one's king. It's the idea of serving him, of abiding in his ways. When he says to be blameless there, in the Old Testament sense, when applied to people, it's not talking about sinlessness. Job was described as a blameless man, but we know Job wasn't without sin. So the idea of blameless there is the idea of someone in the, in the light of who God is and what God has decreed, someone that the greater trajectory of their life is marked by integrity and uprightness and wholeness. This would be Jesus saying to us, in light of my unconditional promises towards you, you don't need to try and earn anything through your own power. My salvation is given freely to you by grace. You don't have to go earn it and perform for it. I'm giving it to you. All I'm asking you in response is to abide and follow me. And this is essentially what God, El Shaddai, is saying to Abram and Sarai here. And we need that same reminder too of El Shaddai. Some of y'all, that's taking the 1982 Amy Grant song, putting that on repeat over and over. The rest of y'all, the 99% have no idea what that song is. This just means when you are in some hard spaces and God is calling you to persevere and endure and and you don't feel like you can or can you trust him, you can trust El Shaddai, that he has what you need. He can provide for you everything you need pertaining to life and to godliness, Peter says, he's given it to you. You can trust him. But then we move from this, this, this declaration into this first discourse. And you see this starting at the end of verse three. And God said to him, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be a father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. And then what you see in verses six, seven, and eight are those three I wills. And they're just recapping the promises that God made to Abram in chapter 12. But three in particular, I will one, make you a great nation out of you. Two, I will provide for you an offspring. And three, I will provide land for you, which is ultimately the the dwelling of God with his people. But I want you to note in verse six, unlike the earlier times we've seen these promises, there's an extra detail that's prophetically inserted here when he tells him that through your offspring that I'm gonna give you are gonna come kings. It's a prophetic moment right here. God lets him know, not only am I gonna give you a son, but this genealogical line of yours is gonna have kings in it. And no doubt we're looking towards King David, King Solomon that will come through this line, but oh, there is no question what God is referring to here is the king of kings that will come through this line. Jesus Christ, who will come through this line, this genealogical line here. But what I want you to note in this first discourse is one of the first signs, and it's a personal sign. This one's just for Abram right here. A personal sign that accompanies these covenant promises. And it's a new name. God's going to rename him. 
And it's interesting, the name Abram means exalted father. And Abraham, Abraham means a father of multitude. And you go, man, why is that such a big deal? Well, prior to this, Abram's name was already a joke, a, a name that basically means dad to a guy that can't have any kids. Well, now he has a child. He has a child in Ishmael. But that child wasn't the one that God had in mind. Ishmael is not the child of promise. He was acquired through human effort. God is going to do a miracle. And so God is essentially saying, since this is my doing and not yours, I'm not only going to make you a father of one promise, I'm going to make you a father of a multitude of them. I'm doubling down. And so he changes his name, but there's more that we need to see here in the changing of Abram's name, because he's going to do the same thing with Sarah. And I want to pause here on this first discourse. We'll come back to it, but look at verse 15 and following in the second discourse, you're going to see the same pattern. You're going to see the same covenantal promise followed by three I wills and then accompanied by a name change. Again, only this time it's in regards to his wife, Sarai. And God said to Abram, Abraham, as far as Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. So again, same covenantal promises here that we saw in the last discourse and originally in chapter 12, but again, with more specificity for Sarai, this child's coming through you, not Hagar. Kings are gonna come through you, yes, but that child is through you. And this is huge here because this has always been what God meant when he talked about the promised child of Isaac, it's, it's going to come through Sarai. But up to this point, Abraham, he knew that the promise would come through his body. He was just doubted whether it would come through his wife's, which is no doubt why in chapter 16, they thought it would be okay for Abram to take Hagar and try to have a child with her because they thought, well, God promised through my old body would come a son. So maybe he didn't specify which woman. And so they grabbed Hagar and had Ishmael. But God says, no, sir. Your son that I'm going to give you is going to come through your barren wife, Sarai. Why? Because I am El Shaddai. And notice Abram's response in verse 17. Same as in verse 3. Abram falls on his face, only this time he's laughing. And this is going to be a major theme in the next several chapters is laughter. And so... Abram, felt, Abram falls on his face and he laughed. He says to himself, shall a child be born to a man who's a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abram said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. In other words, this is, this is Abram's response to God. You crazy. Are you crazy, God? You're gonna take a hundred year old man and have a baby. Ain't nobody wanna see that. So tell you what, how about we go ahead and we just take Ishmael. I've already had him for 13 years. He, let's just make him the promised son. But God says in verse 19, that's not how we're going to play, Abraham. No, God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son. And you shall call his name Isaac, which by the way, Isaac's name means 
laughter. <laughs> Joke's on you, Abraham. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. Isaac through Sarah is the way of promise, not Ishmael through Hagar. It is Isaac through Sarah because God is going to work through human weakness. That is his MO. And uh, to be fair, he's going to say in verse 20 that Ishmael is going to be blessed as well. Many descendants are going to come through Ishmael as well. He's going to have 12 sons of his own, 12 princes. We're going to meet them in chapter 25. And by the way, a little sub note here, this is where history begins to divide. Because through Ishmael's line is where most of the Arab world is going to come from. Muslims today will trace their faith through Ishmael to Abraham. The prophet Muhammad that Islam follows is seen as one of the descendants of Ishmael. It's through Isaac that the Jewish nation is going to come. And ultimately, it is through Isaac that the Messiah, the Redeemer of the world, Jesus Christ, will come. And so God is clear in verse 21, Ishmael's line is not the line of promise. Isaac's is the line of promise. The Messiah has to come through him. And what's important to note, though, and why we jump into this section is, once again, this promise of this seed that would come is followed with a renaming. God renames Sarai as well. You saw that there in verse 15. But here's the deal, where Abraham's name comes with new meaning, exalted father to father of multitude, scholars have struggled with the Sarai name change because there's no definitional change. Sarai or Sarah, they mean essentially the same thing, princess. And so, I think the best answer to what's going on here is one that you won't find definitionally, but you'll find phonetically. And this is just interesting. The Hebrew word for the spirit is the word ruach. Say that with me for just a moment. Say ruach. Put some spit into it. Ruach. You feel that? You don't just say that lightly. You feel it. You feel it viscerally um, as you spit on everyone. But ruach, it means it can mean three different things. In Hebrew, wind, breath, or spirit. In Greek, same, same word, but in Greek is pneuma, and it's the same thing, wind, breath, or spirit. But in Hebrew, it's ruach. The first time we see the ruach of God is in Genesis chapter one, when the spirit, the ruach of God is hovering over the waters in creation. The second time we see ruach is in chapter two when God breathes, when he ruachs into Adam to bring him to life. It's the spirit that's happening. But if we can translate wind or breath. So when God renames Abram and Sarai, he goes from Abram to Abraham and Sarai to Sarah. Many scholars feel here that essentially the same breath, the same spirit that spoke creation into existence, the same ruach that breathed life into Adam is the same ruach that is added to the new life that is given to Abram and Sarai now. 
They are no longer who they once were. They are breathed anew by God. Um, from this point forward in Genesis, they'll never refer to Abram and Sarai again. Only Abraham and Sarah. And I think more importantly, why this serves as a sign is think about it this way. From now on, every time they have to say their names or every time somebody says their names, they're going to be reminded of when God made this covenant with them that this covenant that is rooted now in their new identity. And the truth is the same as for you and I, any one of us who've put our faith in Jesus Christ, the scriptures tell us that we have been made new. We have been given a new name. Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians five seventeen: whoever is in Christ is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. John wrote in 1 John 3, 1, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God now. And so we are, sons and daughters of God. That's your new identity. And you know what? Eventually, when you get to Revelation chapter two and Revelation chapter three, we're told that in heaven, God has a new name waiting for us that only he knows. A new name that will forever link us to our eternal redemption. It's God's way of saying, as your father, I will know and call you not by the name that has been given for you by the hands of men, but by the name that I have breathed into you by my work alone. Well, this discourse picks back up. So you have these personal signs that are given to Abraham and Sarah and the rest of their lives. But now we're going to see a corporate sign. It's at the end of this first discourse. If you go back to verse 9, the sign of all signs that is not going to be just for Abraham, but it's going to be for all the male descendants who will follow. It is that of circumcision. Here we go. Verse 9. God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring, after you throughout their generations. And this is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So what is circumcision and why choose this? of all things, as a sign to give to God's people. Well, circumcision, as we know, it is the cutting away of flesh around the end of the male sexual organ. Today, we do it in America for most boys as a, as a uh, hygienic, for hygienic purposes shortly after they're born. But for God, this is more than hygienic, it was symbolic. It was an external sign signifying the promise and covenant that God had made with Abraham for his people. There's six things that I just want to lay out briefly about why circumcision matters, what it represents, what's important about it in this text so that we can understand it theologically. 
Six things real quick I'd give you. Number one, yes, it is placed on the male sexual organ. God is going to use, and by the way, if you have your bingo cards out, just see how many different ways I can get around using the actual anatomical terms today. So God is going to use the one part of the male anatomy by which the actual seed for the promised offspring will come forth. That is solely why this sign is placed where it is. It's because it's concerning the very nature of the promise that God has made that through your seed will come an offspring. Now, women in this day were grafted in by the covering of the oldest male in their home. The head of their household would represent them in the covenantal people. But the first thing that we see, it is placed on the male sexual organ. The second thing we're to note is it involves the cutting away of flesh. And this too was symbolic. It represented the purity and the separation of God's people, their need for cleansing. Now, just as the physical act of circumcision is a hygienic act, so too it represented God's people being set apart from the other nations as holy unto God. To be fair, circumcision was practiced by other nations in Abraham's day. It's not like God invented it right here. It did exist, but it was a rarity among foreign nations. But when they did uh, use it, they usually used um, used circumcision for ritualistic, cult-like reasons. But by and large, for most foreign nations, they did not practice circumcision. So God did this physical act to symbolize the holiness that he desired within his people, eventually, that would come through the Messiah. God would later tell his people in the giving of the law in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse six, that the greater intention wasn't that you would just have your physical flesh circumcised, but that your hearts would be circumcised. The, the cutting away of the flesh, the sin that so easily entangles us, that you would be purified, you would be made clean. That was the ultimate goal of what God was seeking to do through the Abrahamic covenant. This is just a symbol to symbolize it, that the inside would be clean, not just the outside. Third characteristic is that it was also circular in form. The actual act is circular and it represented an unending covenant that God was making with his people. Fourthly, this sign of circumcision was meant to be externally visible as a reminder. And so think about it this, every time that Abraham and Sarah would enter into sexual relations together with one another, there would be a visible reminder that when this child is conceived, it wasn't by their own doing. God is the one who unlocked her womb. God is the one who's bringing forth this promise. And so the same would be for all the offspring who would come after Abraham uh, all the way up until the time of Jesus. Fifth characteristic is that this is a mark that is meant to identify who God's covenant people are. I want you to note that the, it was commanded that this would happen on the eighth day for all the generations that would follow. The other nations that did practice circumcision, I mentioned it was usually in a cult-like religious rite of passage. Oftentimes circumcision would happen in those communities at the age of 13 or it would happen right before a young man was married. They didn't do it right after birth. God is adapting that practice right here. 
It's interesting, even some Muslim families today, not all Muslim families, but even some Muslim families today will choose to circumcise their sons at the age of 13 because that's when Ishmael was circumcised in this passage, as we'll soon see. But for the promised line of Abraham, starting with Isaac, boys are gonna be circumcised on the eighth day. Why the eighth day? Because in God's economy and in Jewish culture, as we'd see in the days ahead, the eighth day would represent a day of atonement, a day of dedication. And because it was done so early after birth, rather than later on in life, it ensured the very meaning of the promise, that it had nothing to do with the will of the child, God's promise, but rather the will of God by which this promise would come. Thus, anyone who would be identified with God's covenant people and God's covenant promises, even Gentiles, foreigners who would be grafted in, they were to be marked visibly by this sign. And those who chose not to be were literally cut off, to play on words, from God's people. Now, tragically, throughout the generations that would come, the Jewish people began to depart from viewing circumcision as a mere sign that represented their faith in God's promise, but they saw the sign as the actual thing that made them gods. And they saw circumcision as the actual thing that they would cling to for their identity and their salvation. And this leads us to the sixth and final characteristic that circumcision represented. The entire time, what circumcision was pointing to was Jesus Christ. The whole point of the Abrahamic covenant is that through Abraham and then Isaac and Jacob and on down the line, is that eventually that promised offspring would come in whom all the nations would be blessed, our Messiah, Jesus Christ. And the whole point of Jesus even coming was to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. And that is to cleanse us from our sins in our hearts from the sin that so easily entangles us. And so this savior would be one who would come and who would be cut for us, who would bleed for us so that we wouldn't have to. Who through his own shedding of blood would not only fulfill the covenant that God made with Abraham, but he would also inaugurate a new covenant. Through his work on the cross, through his death, burial and resurrection, where through that work on the cross, the Ruach, the spirit of God would write his law on the inside of our bodies, not just on the outside. He would make our hearts clean from within. This is what God has been after all along. It was never about a physical mark. That was just a sign pointing to the greater substance that was Christ who would do the internal cutting away of the flesh. That's what the sign was for. But where Jews got sideways on that was holding to the sign itself as the means of salvation. And that's why the apostle Paul writes emphatically in Romans chapter two, verses 28 and 29, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. Just having, being circumcised doesn't make you truly Jewish in faith. No, he says instead, nor is circumcision outward and physical. No, it's meant to be spiritual. A Jew is one inwardly and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit. So it's no wonder by the time we get to Acts chapter 15 in the New Testament, 
when the apostles gather together at the Jerusalem council and they're considering the grace of Jesus Christ and the gospel and the new covenant that has been inaugurated for us, the circumcision is no longer required. One does not have to become circumcised in order to get to Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of circumcision. And so therefore, in light of the new covenant that Jesus makes in which he performs for us in his work on the cross, a new sign accompanies the new covenant. It's the sign of baptism. Sign of baptism. Paul is gonna make this correlation in Colossians chapter two, verses 11 and 12, when he says, in him, that is in Jesus Christ also, you were circumcised all right, but it was a circumcision made without hands. It's a spiritual one. By putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, and now he correlates it, having been buried with him in baptism. How were we circumcised internally? Not through an act on the outside, by us being buried with Christ in his death, through baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And so similar to circumcision, but different, baptism serves as an outward sign of our faith in the work of Christ on the cross. It is commanded of believers, just as circumcision was, of God's people in the Old Testament, but it is not the means of salvation. It is simply a symbol of it, a testimony of it. And it is communicating some of the same things that circumcision was. Our cleansing and holiness that has been given to us by Christ and his work on the cross. Our baptism is communicating our communion and union with God, our identification with God and his covenant people that we have joined in the greater family of God. It's communicating our testimony and justification by faith. You know, Abraham believed in chapter 15. He wasn't circumcised until 13 years later in chapter 17. In the same way, we believe upon Jesus Christ, receive salvation, and we are baptized after our salvation. Not as a means of salvation, but as a testimony to it. And therefore, it symbolizes our death with Christ on the cross, our burial and our resurrection through his resurrection into the newness of life. And so in many ways, baptism is actually a more radical sign than circumcision when you think about it. Circumcision removes, involves removing a part of your body. Baptism, your entire self is buried. It's even more radical. Your entire self is buried with Christ, total death to self and surrender to the newness of life in Christ. And so what God is doing in both circumcision and baptism, he is marking his people with a sign of his covenant as both a reminder of what he has accomplished already and what he intends to do in now setting his people apart for the purposes by which he has saved them for. And as such, we can always look back to our baptism when that mark was given and be encouraged that God is not a liar and we can press on. You know, we do this, we use signs in other ways. I use it uh, in marriage. Um, on my deepest days of doubt and struggle in my marriage to my wife, the last 23 years, days where I feel like I'm a loser husband, days when I feel like, oh my gosh, are we gonna make it? All these things that we've had over the years, on those dark days of doubt, I actually look to my ring. It's a symbol. Now, this is not my marriage. I can take it off right now, and I'm still married. 
but it's a symbol. And when I look at this ring, it takes me back 23 years ago to June 10th, 2000, when I remember that moment when my wife and I stood and we made a covenant together that in sickness and health and plenty and want and joy and sorrow, that we are united together. And by looking at this sign and taking me back to the original covenant, it encourages me that God's not done with us. And that God has everything that we need, El Shaddai, to carry us forward in the days ahead. And in the same way, I can tell you on my hardest days right now, when I sit in a courtroom and I'm having to look at autopsy pictures and images of mass carnage, and I am feeling the immeasurable weight of two families who are looking to me through tears in that courtroom, pleading that I get their version of justice right. And on those days when I am tempted to despair and I am tempted to question God and wonder if God will truly bring about the justice on earth that he promised he would one day and the full consummation of his redemption that he has purchased for us through Jesus on the cross and promised will come one day when I am tempted to doubt that, you know what I do? I actually look back to my baptism. I look back to my baptism and I remember that watermark that was put on me, reflecting the covenant that God made with me through sending his son, Jesus Christ, to die for my sins and to forgive me and to cleanse me and to make me new. And I realize in that moment, God is not done. If he can save me, he can save anybody. If he can forgive me for what I've done, he can forgive you for what you've done. And I remember that what God has purchased in my salvation on that cross and the baptism that symbolizes it reminds me and encourages me that the rest of his promises will come true. In the spirit of Romans 5, if he was willing to give up his own son to purchase my salvation, how can he not freely with Christ give me what's left? which is the inheritance that's coming upon the earth in whom all the nations will be blessed. And so the last thing that I want to show you in this text before we close out is that the act of circumcision was meant to be an act of obedience that was based on the promise that had already been given. How quickly did Abraham obey the command to be circumcised. Look at the last few verses, just want to scan it. Verses, 20, um, verses 23 to 27. How quickly did Abraham obey? You see verse 23? That very day. You see verse 26? That very day. I want you to think about the pain of that obedience for just a moment. You think a 13-year-old boy would want to get circumcised right then. Uh, hey, hey, Lord, how about we uh, do this tomorrow? <laughs> how about we do this never? Sound good? How about a 99-year-old man getting circumcised right then? How about an entire household of grown men who are in this passage? Yet they all went through it that very day. Why? Because they had put their trust in the promise of God. They believed that God was not a liar. 
and they marked themselves off, signifying their trust in the promise of God to come. If you have yet to put your faith in Jesus Christ, could I just encourage you for just a moment? You need to know that El Shaddai, God Almighty, has moved heaven and earth for you to forgive you, to cleanse you, to not only give you a new name as a son and daughter of God, but to give you a new life. And he did it by sending his son, Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of this passage. He sent Jesus to do for you what you couldn't do for yourself. Your response is not to take that and try to put your salvation in your own hands and perform for it because you can't. Your response is to believe. Your response is to abide. And your response is to follow. What a great opportunity to surrender your faith, to transfer your trust from your own works to Jesus Christ who came and worked on your behalf. There is nothing you can do to make God love you anymore. And there is nothing that you can do to make God love you any less because he doesn't love you based on your performance. He loves you based on the performance of his son, Jesus Christ, who came for you. So rest in him. If you have professed faith in Jesus Christ, but you have yet to be baptized, can I just gently ask you, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Step into the waters and mark yourself off with the rest of God's family and publicly identify yourself with the death, burial, and resurrection of your savior, Jesus Christ, who died for you and rose for you. Stand in the waters and testify and join with a millennia of other sons and daughters of God who've gone before you in those same waters and mark yourself with the water covenant of God. This is good news for us today. If you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, you follow that up with baptism, then I would encourage you, remember on your days of doubt, God has given you a new name. And remember, by looking back at your baptism, that God is not a liar. He sent Jesus once to save you from your sins. He will send him again to make all things new and trust him. Do you know in the earliest days throughout church history, one of the common phrases that church members would say to other church members to encourage them in doubt, they would say this, remember your baptism and celebrate it with joy. Remember your baptism and celebrate it with joy. It is an anchor to remind you of who God is and what he has promised to do. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time in your word. Thank you for on an odd passage like this that we can be encouraged that El Shaddai is on the throne. And El Shaddai has this all worked out even when we don't understand it. So God, may we trust in you as your children. May we hold fast to you. Be reminded this day, those of us who have been given a new name, a new life, a new identity, and by even looking back at our own baptism, are reminded that what you've started, you will be faithful to finish. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus. So we want to encourage you to be a part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 11.15, and 4 p.m., and would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.